Our scripture reading tonight is the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, and beginning at verse 1 through 14, listen, this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, what do we mean when we confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins? We have been looking at pictures of forgiveness, images God Himself gives us in His Word that describe what He means when He says He forgives our sin. And our goals along the way have been that we might better understand what forgiveness means. And as we understand it better, that we might embrace and enjoy and live out of the forgiveness God gives us in Christ Jesus. But we had another goal along the way, and that is that we might be able to explain the term to anyone who asks us. Because sometimes we recognize that as Christians, we we use our own inside language, lingo, not always or easily understood by others. Just like we drive down the turnpike and the blue route and the Schuylkill, or just like we eat cheesecake and cheesesteaks rather and scrapple. I'm sorry, that's the second time you've heard that today. But we use our own kind of language, and it's important for us to be able not only to understand it for ourselves, to embrace it and to to live in it, but to be able to explain to others who are coming to us from another place, and they may not have heard of the geographical terms or the culinary terms, but more importantly, gospel terms. And one of the ways we've been even able to understand or begin to understand what forgiveness of sins means, we need to be able to define sin. And we've been saying it's a lack of conformity to 
God's law, either in doing what God forbids or commands us not to do, or by not doing what God's law commands us to do. And the result of our sinning and the result of our sin is that we have created an obstacle between ourselves and God. We are not able to enjoy God's presence or the full benefits and blessings of His care and love for us. Our sin needs to be dealt with. Thanks be to God, in Jesus Christ, He has planned and performed a way of salvation that satisfies both His holiness, justice, and wrath against sin on the one hand, and His love, mercy, and compassion for us on the other. And as part of that plan of His salvation accomplished for us in Jesus Christ miraculously and amazingly, uh, this plan includes, but is not limited to, the forgiveness of sins. And so for our purposes, we've been framing the question largely uh, in, in these terms by asking, well, then what God, does God do with our sin? <clears throat> he forgives it, the easy answer is. But we've been discovering that that has its own world or set of pictures and images that helps us understand it and to get to some of the fullness of what that means. And again, forgiveness is not all that God means when He describes salvation, but there is no salvation without it. Well then, what does it mean and what does it involve? <clears throat> I was not really put on the spot this morning, but asked to give a one-sentence definition of forgiveness. And I gave something like this. It's an act of God's free grace, whereby for the sake of Christ and what He has done, God removes the obstacle of sin. He deals with our sin together with its consequences for the penitent. And you can understand then that forgiveness not only involves sin, but it has in view our repentance. But we've seen, for example, that God removes our sin by dropping it into the depths of the ocean like a big rock. Or by washing it away or by transferring it as far away from us as the east is from the west. He removes it from his memory. He remembers it no more. He removes it from his sight by covering it. And he removes that bad debt from our account by canceling it. Well, tonight we come to a slightly different kind of image, still very much looking at pictures of forgiveness. But instead of asking, what does God do with our sin? We're asking this question, what does God do with us? What does forgiveness look like as it relates to us? And since we are not ever the heroes of our story, what does the picture of forgiveness in Colossians 1 tell us about God? How does this elevate our estimation of our great God? So our text, and let's hear it again, is Colossians 1, 13 and 14, the last two verses we read. He has delivered us from the domain or dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Well, let me just say this from the start, that this grammatically speaking, this is not going to be on the quiz, but it's helpful for you to know perhaps, redemption and the forgiveness of sins are placed next to each other appositionally. That's just a fancy way of saying they're two nouns and they mean essentially the same thing, but the second gives us a little bonus information. It helps us especially understand the first, but the two help define each other. And so very simply, redemption and the forgiveness of sins are uh, a pair and to be considered together. And since we're asking the question, well, what does forgiveness of sins mean? How do we define that? How do we explain it? How do we help someone understand it? We're even in a little more trouble, perhaps, because the word redemption, though we might sing about our Redeemer, redemption is, is it, it perhaps an even more obscure word theologically or even just part of our vocabulary. That means we need to explore a little bit about what does God mean when he uses the word redemption. That's our goal for this evening. Now, ordinarily, I would give some exposition of the text and then provide some illustration that will help amplify this, uh, but I'm going to give the illustration first, and I hope this will be helpful as we work our way through. Suppose that I were to retire from ministry at Trinity Church, and you all gave me, as a gift, a very expensive, very beautiful Rolex watch. Just suppose. But then I fell on hard times, and my credit card debt started to pile up, and my mortgage payment was in arrears, and the bank was started to send me nasty, threatening letters. <clears throat> and since no one seems interested in canceling my debt, which is a uh, the picture we looked at last time, a, a way of forgiveness, I begin to think to myself, well, at least my Rolex watch is probably worth something. But I can't really bear to part with it because in addition to it being very expensive, it has significant sentimental value. It was a gift from Trinity Church upon my retirement. So what do I do? I go down to the local pawn shop. And we might not all be all that familiar with what a pawn shop is, but they take my watch and they give me a small loan that represents only a fraction of the value of the watch. And they promise to hold my watch for a certain amount of time to allow me eventually to repay the loan with plenty of interest to be sure, but then I could get my watch back. However, if I don't return to the pawn shop with the agreed-upon amount of money in the agreed-amount period of time, the watch becomes theirs, and they can sell it, presumably, at a great profit. But suppose within that time my fortunes change and I find myself flush with cash and I go back to the pawn shop and there it is, they still have my watch and I buy it back. I've undoubtedly lost some money on this transaction, but, but what have I done? I have redeemed my watch. My watch is redeemed. And that's pretty much the definition of the term as it's used in Scripture, and it is, by the way, the term pawn shops use to describe that transaction. You're coming to redeem 
the object that you had given to them. I pay a price to regain something, regain something that I had forfeited. And that's just one illustration uh, you might imagine from everyday life here. And in the Old Testament, of course, we have the ultimate, much better illustration, and that is the Exodus event, which God himself describes as him redeeming his people. In other words, the Exodus and God's rescue of his people from slavery is more than just a deliverance. It's more than just a rescue. It is described in terms of redemption. So God says to Moses in Exodus 6, as he's, as he's sending him to Egypt, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. This is God's promise to his people while they are in slavery through the mouth of his servant Moses that he's going to deliver them and rescue them, and he frames it in terms of redemption. I'm going to redeem you. And then after the fact, in Deuteronomy 7, God again describes the Exodus. Now, it has happened, but he describes it again in terms of redemption. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you up with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Again, it's after the fact that he looks back and he says, here's what I did for you. I brought you up, but I redeemed you. And we're going to see a little later that this has everything to do with God's commitment to keeping his promises. So both my illustration of redeeming my Rolex from the pawn shop and Yahweh redeeming his people from, uh, from, Israel, from Egypt both give some picture of what redemption actually is. And, and I want to just walk through with you these four components of what it means to redeem or to be redeemed. Redemption has these four uh, in view. First, prior ownership. Prior ownership. I owned my watch before I went to the pawn shop, my imaginary watch. God owned his people before they went to Egypt. He owned them and he owns us by virtue of his having created us. But he also owned them in a very special way. Because he had made a relationship with them, forming it and building that relationship on great promises to Abraham 
and to his descendants. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And I'm going to do great things through you. And in fact, this was the promise that was being fulfilled in the procreation and the proliferation of the, Egypt, of the Israelites in Egypt in those opening words of the book of Exodus. Those are God's people. They are his possession. But the second part of redemption, not only is this prior ownership, but there's a, an element of being dispossessed. There's, through a whole series of events, and you go back to the book of Genesis and the early part of Exodus to get this, but uh, this people belonging to Yahweh are uh, once free and now have become enslaved. And they're suppressed. And they're put to hard labor. So much so that the picture of ownership seems to be one of transference. They belonged to Yahweh, they still belong to Yahweh, but for all practical purposes and, and to anyone else's eye, it sure looked like they belonged to Pharaoh. They serve Pharaoh instead of serving Yahweh. And that really is ultimately the kind of point of what the Exodus is about. God wants to change that. God wants to not only destroy Pharaoh, but he wants his people to be rescued and to serve him. There's a kind of way it sure looks like they belong to Pharaoh. So redemption has in view the buying back of the people or property sold into slavery, either to pay off a debt or as a prisoner of war, which is why you also hear the language of ransom. But there's another picture yet again of redemption, and it has some connections to the Exodus. It's a reminder of God's great and mighty acts. God says, when you get into the land of Canaan, land that really is the Lord's and is always to remain the Lord's, you're just going to be tenants. You'll have it as your inheritance, but you are stewards of that land. You're to live there. And that land may not be sold or transferred in perpetuity. And on top of that, the Lord is laying claim on every firstborn of animal, of sons. They are to be dedicated to him, devoted to him. The animals to be sacrificed, the son, firstborn son, is to be devoted or dedicated to Yahweh. And then he provides this. He says, but your firstborn sons can be redeemed. They can be bought back through a substitute sacrifice made on their behalf so that your firstborn son can live a kind of normal, regular life as your son. The land, which might have been sold or transferred every once in a while, was never to be done in perpetuity. And you may remember an additional layer of redemption, the year of Jubilee. That sort of great reset when everything went back to its original owner, in scare quotes. So again, redemption has this picture of prior ownership of a kind of dispossession and a forfeiture. 
But then it has this third part, and that's a, a price. Redemption is typically transactional. A price is paid, the object in question is released and returned. So I go to the pawn shop, I pay up, and I get my watch back. I don't get someone's guitar. This, of course, is where the story of Exodus should not be pushed too far. It's true, the Lord exerts great power, a mighty outstretched arm. He says, great mighty acts of judgment. And he does all that with a purpose of reclaiming or redeeming his people. And yes, it's true that the lives of firstborn sons and animals are forfeited in the Exodus. And that's what's to be remembered in that later subsequent devotion of the firstborn. But there's no sense in the story, is there, that Yahweh pays a large sum of money to Pharaoh to get his people back. Yahweh doesn't come with a money bag and go to Pharaoh and say, here, let me, let me get my people back. How much do you need? And, and as we move into the New Testament, this picture becomes even fuller. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 sounds a lot like Ephesians 1, 7. Paul's writing to two different churches and he's reminding them of who they are and what God has done for them. And he's listing all these ways he he gives thanks for them because they are embracing and enjoying God's great work on their behalf. And in Colossians 1, he says this, in him, almost exactly like our text, in him, or sorry, sorry, Ephesians 1, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The price paid, as we understand redemption in the New Testament context, the price paid is nothing less than the blood, the life of Christ, the firstborn son, the only son. And this has all kinds of implications, of course. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Or maybe the clearest picture of all, 1 Peter 1, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So God has provided the price in His Son, a perfect sacrifice, and it's the blood of Christ, the price of your redemption. And again, here's where we cannot press the image too far. We're not to imagine, for instance, that God pays the price of the blood of His Son, Jesus, to Satan to redeem us from Satan's grip. Nevertheless, the outcome is the same for us as it is in the Exodus. So we have prior possession, we have a dispossession, we have a price to be paid, and then here's that last part of what redemption means. Look at verse 13 with me, it's setting us up for this. He, that is God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here's the picture. Our sin, by our own doing, of our own volition, our own work, has placed us in the grip of Satan, in the dominion or domain of darkness. We were willing subjects to him, Satan, we were willing participants in that kind of kingdom work, which is sinning. But God, who is rich in mercy, has rescued us in much the same way he rescued ancient Israel out of Egypt. Through a demonstration of power of great and mighty acts of judgment. This time, through his son, his firstborn son. And he does this to rescue his people he has chosen for his inheritance. He rescued them from serving Pharaoh that they might serve him. He rescues us from serving sin that we might serve him. He reclaims his treasured possession and he brings them into their inheritance. And he rescues us his treasured possession, and he is bringing us into a glorious inheritance. So now we are redeemed from sin and death and from the enemy, from the grave. There are all kinds of things from which we are redeemed. If you would take the time to look that up in Scripture. He frees us from the tyranny of sin. He frees us from that servitude to sin. He frees us from the dominion of darkness. So when Zechariah the priest is told of the arrival of his son, who is going to be the one who will announce the arrival of the Messiah, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people. So sure of he of what the completion of that in the announcement of an incarnation so sure is it Jesus is coming. God has redeemed his people. He has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And so we now are redeemed from the power of sin. We're redeemed from the grip of Satan, from the dominion of darkness. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians chapter 3. And so we enjoy redemption now. We are redeemed. And we enjoy the forgiveness of sin now and in the present. Those two terms held together in this verse and in Ephesians 1. And yet we have this ongoing future expectation. So Paul writes in Romans 8, the full flowering of this benefit, along with all the others, found in Christ, will come to us with Christ when he comes again. So not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons and what? The redemption of our body. So we look forward to the resurrection and the full 
flowering of God's gift to us of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And verses 11 through 12 remind us, we please God in the present when we patiently endure trials, when we walk with joyful thanksgiving. Because on a night like tonight, we reflect on this little part of God's plan of salvation for us, this significant but not the only one, but significant aspect, redemption. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And here Paul is using language that comes right out of the Old Testament. He's describing the future that waits us as he described the future that waited for the Israelites as they were going through the desert. The promised land. This inheritance God has secured for them. He's going to give them this land as their inheritance. And from our perspective, we have saints we know who have gone ahead of us to receive their inheritance, a hearty and heartfelt welcome from Jesus Christ into his glorious presence because their sins are forgiven. They have been redeemed, and they're only now waiting for the redemption of their bodies, but they have received that salvation nearly in full because they're in God's presence and they can stand there and be welcomed. Here's one other way to think of it as you enter this new week. You are never going back to the pawn shop to be put under lock and key or to be sold to someone else. Rather, you will be warned forever in the palace. In the palace of the king, the king who reigns in light, and you will give praise and worship and magnify his glory forever and ever because you are forgiven and you are redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for another picture of what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you for the joy of salvation, of knowing the great cost to our Redeemer and of your perfect plan that we are now redeemed. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. You are our King, our Redeemer, and our Lord. Thank you, our Father, for rescuing us and for redeeming us. Otherwise, we would be lost and enslaved. Thank you. Now guide us into this week. Grant us strength and joy to endure with thanksgiving to you for all you've done. Receive our thanks and hear our prayer we offer it in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen.